I know this one gave a hard time to students all the time, so hopefully I'm going to be better than last year to explain this. <laughs> then clearance and half time. So before going to the volume of distribution, just um, a reminder of the um, body compartment. And the total body water is approximately 50 to 60% of uh, the body weight. So as an example, average weight for a woman, 60 kilo. I know you are used to pounds. <laughs> so it's approximately, I would say 130, 140 pounds. So it's 36 liter of water. And those water compartments are subdivided into intracellular fluid, extracellular fluid, and plasma. So for the same body weight, you have approximately two liters of plasma. And the water-soluble drug, as we talked about, they are confined in the plasma because they are mainly, um, plasma is mainly made of water. Then you have inter interstitial fluid, transcellular fluids, and fats. And of course, fat, unfortunately for women, is more important than in men. And so we, we are more likely to accumulate drugs in our body fat than men. That's another thing. And here I put a link to Katsun. So you have all the table. But this is just for your information. Now, what is the volume of distribution of a drug? It's called an apparent volume. So it's not a real volume. And the um, equation is the total amount of a drug in the body divided by the plasma drug concentration. So if you have a drug, uh, you administer a drug, it can you know, either stay in the plasma or uh, be distributed in the tissue. If you have a drug that is gonna accumulate in one organ, let's say it's gonna accumulate in the brain, that means the total body concentration, the total amount of that drug is gonna be high compared to the plasma concentration, that means those drugs is a high volume of distribution. And so volume of distribution is actually represent on like the heterogeneity of how the drug is distributed in your body. Because if it's homogeneously distributed in the body, that volume of distribution is gonna be almost equal to the, the volume of the plasma but you will see most of the drug they can accumulate in one organ and they have a high volume of distribution. And so for example, as I said, the drug that are used for like antidepressant, where they accumulate in the brain, they have a high volume of distribution. So it kind of reflects the amount of water that you would need to dilute your drug in order to be equivalent to the plasma concentration of the drug. So that's, that's what the volume of this distribution reflects. So if you take, for example, uh, I don't know, 10 milligram of that drug, and there are very little in the plasma concentration, that means you need a high, you would need a big volume to dilute that amount of drug in order to have the same concentration as your um, concentration is in the plasma. So it's, very, it's not a real volume because you don't have you know, 2,000 liter uh, you know, uh, of plasma. So if you see a volume of distribution of 2,000, it's an apparent. That would mean it's the quantity, like the volume you would need to dilute that drug that is stored in your brain in order to have the same concentration <coughs> that in your, in your vein. 
Does that make sense? <laughs> so as I said, it's more a reflection of how the drug will be distributed. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be different, but that's really that volume of distribution. It's a parameter, so it's 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 established, it's known. So, for example, um, yeah, we'll see Prozac. It's known to have a, a high volume of distribution, so it doesn't mean right away when you take it. It's like in general, it's known that it's going to concentrate in in the brain, and they have a high volume of distribution. So they measure at a certain point. They measure, you know, all those they get it from uh, in vitro testing and. Uh, because they know, yeah. What, what's the value of milligrams? Yeah, what do you mean? The what? I mean, clinically, what's the value of milligrams? Yeah, the point is, so why, what does that mean when you have a high volume of distribution? That means if you have a drug that has a high volume of distribution, that means it's not um, evenly distributed in the body. So as I said, drugs for the central nervous system tend to accumulate in the brain. Some, for example, some antibacterial you want them to accumulate where you have the infection. So if, for example, you have a local infection in your toe, you want the drug to get there. So you, the volume of distribution is going to reflect that that drug is not evenly distributed. So we'll see some examples. For example, aspirin, because aspirin is well distributed through the, uh, the plasma, aspirin doesn't have a high volume of distribution. But drugs that tend to accumulate somewhere that has, are not evenly distributed as a high volume of distribution. And other consequences of that is going to affect the half-life. So the time that the drug is going to stay in your body. So that's why it's important. Of course, you know, for you, it might not be as important as a registered nurse, but maybe some of you, you know, if you want to become a nurse practitioner and you're going to prescribe, you want to know uh, what is going to be the consequence of um, a drug that has a high volume of distribution because the half-life is going to be also um, big. And I'm, I'm going to have examples, so it's going to make it uh, hopefully easier to understand. Because uh, as I said, the plasma, the volume of the plasma, it's two liters. So if you see something that has uh, volume of distribution that is 100. That means it's not. It's apparent. It's not real, and that that means that that drug, the concentration of your drug in your body, is going to be somewhere, but it's not going to be evenly distributed, because as I said, what you want to measure is what you have in your plasma. So if you take your blood and you see the concentration is very little, but the drug is accumulated <coughs> somewhere. That's because, you know, uh, it's, for example, very lipophilic and has a high volume of distribution. And so you want to know what are going to be the consequences in terms of excretion and half-life. If it's not there, it's going to be at some point, it's going to go back to your circulation. And, you know, you might have some, uh, see some adverse effect if you give another dose. Yeah. a drug that is evenly distributed and you you are going to prefer a drug that has a small volume of distribution. Okay. Yeah. And that's even for drugs you need to deal with the side effects, right? Yes, and you will see, so for, as I said, antidepressant, they have high volume of distribution and when we'll talk about antidepressant, that's also why 
their effect doesn't start right away because you know it's going to take time to they're going to accumulate and then in order to go back to the you know to the to the side you know it's going to take more time you know to have that equilibrium between what is stored and what's reached the target if it's a receptor so antidepressant it takes you know like 3 weeks to start seeing the effects it's because of that because they accumulate and so they cannot reach their uh, receptor and have the maximum of you know, the maximum concentration right where you want. Yes. Is it directed towards the stimulate in this way? Um, is uh, no longer administered? Will wherever it's been sequestered will it be released? So this is for those drugs that has a like a very long half life, basically. You want to give, um, and I'm going to talk about this. You want to to give um, a higher dose at the beginning because you want to reach the effective concentration, and then you have the maintenance dose that are going to be smaller because once it's going to you know start kicking, when you're going to start seeing the effect, then you reduce you <coughs> reduce the dose because we're going to talk about all this, the steady state effect, and uh, so in the in the next slide maybe it's going to make more sense. <laughs> More questions? So I'll give you a little example here, but um, for hypertension, you know, for drugs that you know, reduce hypertension. Hypertension, yeah. Is, does that work? Do they have like a long half-life? Yeah, the half-life you see is, is like, you know, pretty normal. Some is like five hours, six hours, but like Prozac is two days. So I have the table and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna talk about those different uh, parameters. So for example, in a woman, it can accumulate in the adipose tissue. And What's another example besides say fat? Yeah, most of the time they are accumulating fat because they are lipid soluble. And because the brain is also you know, very uh, lipophilic, a lot of cholesterol in the brain, that's another example. Or as I said, the one that are like uh, antibacterial, if you want them to reach the bacteria, if it's a local infection, then actually for those antibiotics, you want them to accumulate there. You don't want them to be evenly distributed because you want to kill the bacteria. But for the other, like the one that you want a specific you know, effect on the heart, you don't want that drug to you know, accumulate, for example, in your adipose tissue, because then it would not affect your heart. You need to, you know, like for those drugs that are known to have a very, very high, and it's not all the drugs we'll see, you know, when you look at the table, it's a few of them. And that's when you have to give, as I said, you want to give a dose, a higher dose at the first time and then give the maintenance dose. Yeah. So just as a general thing rule, besides drugs you want to be sequestered in fat, you uh -huh. would say you always want them below. Yeah, you want always one that is going to be evenly distributed, you know. Uh, yes? Is volume distribution something that's written on the sheet that can take the dose? Is that something that the manufacturer establishes? Or uh, no, you're probably going to find it on the drug at FDA. And, uh, you know, the ones that are well known to have a high volume of distribution, um, 
it's not, you know, like on those pharmacotherapy book that you can use, it's gonna be mentioned and you're gonna have, okay, be, you know, be careful because this drug tend to accumulate and has a half. The thing, what is gonna be uh, the reflection of the volume of the distribution is the half-life. So a drug that has a two-day, three-day half-life, you have to know that, you know, the effect is not gonna be right away because it's gonna take time to reach the effective concentration and also, it's gonna be also dangerous if you administered uh, too much of it because then it's gonna take more time to be eliminated and you can reach, you know, higher level of toxicity. When you say that a low volume distribution is preferred, yeah. um, and an exception is if you have a localized infection and an antibiotic, yeah. um, are, there, are there a lot of other exceptions or is that? For uh, where you want, yeah, most of the time you want a drug that has a small volume of distribution. Yeah, yeah. So, drug with a high volume of distribution, that means they have higher concentration in the extravascular tissue. So as I said, as an example, uh, brain or adipose tissue, and so they are not homogeneously distributed. And the drug that are completely retained within the vascular compartment has a minimum possible VD. And we'll see, you know, you don't see many drugs that has a minimal VD possible. It's just, you know, in between. Um, so the one that has um, high volume of distribution, so that's the one that binds preferentially to the tissue at the expense of the plasma. So as an example, highly lipophilic drugs. And so that means in that case, the plasma drug concentration is gonna be low. And if you go back to this, if this is low, that means this is gonna be high and then volume of distribution is gonna be high because you divide by the plasma concentration. And so then they have a huge apparent volume of distribution. And so that, as I said, if the drug accumulates outside the plasma compartment, then the volume of distribution may exceed the total body volume. But it's an apparent, you know, it's like, it's not your real volume, so, but it can be higher than. Now the next uh, pharmacokinin, and we'll have an example, I, I'm gonna show the example at the end where you have volume of distribution, clearance, and half-life. So then, um, hopefully, it will make even more sense than now. <laughs> I know it's hard. Um, the clearance, so measure the ability of um, the body to eliminate the drug. So it is equal to the rate of an elimination divided by the concentration of the drug. And so C is the plasma drug concentration. And so you have different order uh, kinetic. Most of the time, it's a first order kinetic. So that means the rate of uh, elimination is uh, directly proportional. So if you rearrange the previous equation, you have the rate of elimination that is directly proportional to the clearance time the, uh, the drug concentration. So what does that mean? If the concentration of the plasma increase, your rate of elimination increase. That's the case for a first order elimination. So you have a constant fraction of the drug in the body that is eliminated uh, per unit of time. And in that case, for the first order elimination, the rate of elimination is proportional 
uh, to the amount of the drug in the body. Now, when you have an elderly patient with an impaired uh, kidney function or liver function, what can happen is that their metabolism starts to saturate uh, or their excretion starts to saturate, and that means the rate of elimination is not going to be uh, related to the concentration. The concentration is going to increase, but the rate of elimination is not uh, keeping up because the uh, renal function or liver function is impaired. In that case, it's called capacity-limited elimination, which is also called uh, zero-order uh, elimination. And so for few drugs, that um, elimination process becomes saturated at high concentration, and then the rate of elimination is independent of the drug concentration. So first order is dependent on the drug concentration. Zero order, it becomes independent. It's just constant, it's just you know, like flat. Uh, it doesn't matter of the, it's not anymore proportional to the, the concentration. That's the case with ethanol. I'm sure everybody experienced that one in their lifetime. <laughs> You keep drinking and you don't uh, metabolize, you know, at the same rate, and then you keep drinking and drinking, and then you know the consequences of it. Phenytoin <laughs> uh, and aspirin. So, in case of uh, aspirin in, uh, intoxication, the enzyme and the excretion is not um, able to um, metabolize aspirin, and then you start seeing a zero order. So first it's, you know, uh, first order elimination, but when it's saturated, it becomes zero order. The concentration increase and the elimination doesn't, you know, keep up with the increase in concentration. So in that case, the steady state is not achieved. And then a, a slight increase in the plasma concentration is, um, Unpredictable. You don't know what are going to be the consequences. Same thing. You are drinking, and then the next glass of wine you're going to get. <laughs> the consequences are unpredictable. So same thing with drugs. So it's clinically important when you change the dose of a drug that has a narrow therapeutic in uh, index because a slight increase of dosage can have a consequence. So that means the metabolism. Uh, is not going to be uh, first order anymore, and so if it becomes zero order, you might see more toxic effects. <coughs> I know the half-life. <coughs> so is the time for the drug level to decline by 50%. So it's also a parameter that are known if you see, you know, pharmacotherapy uh, textbook, they will give you the half-life of the drug and they will give you the volume of distribution of the drug. And so that half-life is gonna determine how often you have to administer uh, your drug. Ideally, for the patient compliances, it's always better to have only once daily because, you know, patient, you know, tend not to be very compliant and if they only have to take the drug once a day, it makes them, their life easier. Uh, and as I said, now you have those sustained release formulation that can actually prolong the half-life of the drug, but the, the chemical itself is, you know, will have the same half-life, it's just the formulation that makes it uh, a sustained release. So the half-life is a constant multiplied by the volume of distribution. So if your volume of distribution is high, 
your half life is going to be high, and and then divide it by the clearance. So if the clearance is impaired, then your half life is also going to be impaired. Because if this uh, this if this is reduced, then you're going to have an increase in your half life. So patient with kidney um, dysfunction or liver dysfunction, the clearance is going to be uh, decreased and the half-life is going to increase. If the time for the drug to decline by 50% is increased, that means you are more likely to develop adverse effect or toxic effect. And so the half-life determines the dosage interval. And so this is an example where you have um, repeated dose. So most of the time you don't administer a single dose. You have a multiple dose regimen. And so after giving the first, the, the day one, you give the dose, you have an increase in um, the drug in your body. And before you know, giving the next dose on the second day, because it's gonna be excreted, it's reduced but doesn't go back to zero. You give the next dose, you have again an increase and so on day after day. And after four to five half-life, you finally reach a plateau, which is called the steady state. And it's a rule for all most of the drug is after four to five half-life, that's when you reach this plateau where the rate of um, the drug that goes to the plasma is equal to the rate of elimination. And this is no matter what dose you give at the beginning, if you give a higher dose, the difference is here, your concentration is gonna be higher, but you're still gonna uh, reach your uh, steady state after four to five half-life. So the, the, the time to reach the plateau is not dependent of the dose that you administered. The time to reach the plateau is determined by the half-life of the drug and it takes four to five half-life to reach that plateau. And this is the case for a first-order kinetic, of course. Um, and so as I said, for some uh, drugs, you need to give a loading dose because they have a long half-life and it would take you know, too long to reach the steady state, so you're gonna administer a larger dose and so then you can reach the, the target concentration. And, um, and then you give a maintenance dose, which is a smaller dose, in order to maintain uh, the steady state. And here are some examples. This is a normal kinetic. And so you see, you give 10 milligrams, you reach the half-life after um, four to five half-life. You give 20 milligrams, you have a higher plasma concentration, but you still reach the steady state at the same time with the first order kinetic. 30 milligrams, the concentration is higher, but you still reach your steady state after four to five half life. Now this is a case of a saturating kinetic. So if you give 10 milligrams, you are fine. You still reach your uh, steady state after four to five. But you see when you start increasing the dose, it's not steady anymore, it keeps increasing. And then here you give 20 milligrams, it keeps increasing and um, you don't reach your steady state because this is a saturating kinetic. So for those drugs, you have to be careful when you administer uh, the next dose because you don't want to reach a toxic concentration. So you want to um, give the second dose uh, 
after a longer period of time in order to avoid toxicity. And here is the table everybody was waiting for. <laughs> with the volume of distribution and um, so this is for a 70 kilogram uh, patient and so as you see in terms of half-life Tylenol two hours that's the reason why if you take Tylenol and it's not a, a prolonged uh, formulation if you are sick and you have you know a fever you want to take your tylenol every four hours in order to maintain the therapeutic effect of tylenol same thing for aspirin very short half-life and you see the volume of distribution 11 for aspirin 67 for acetaminophen now when i was talking about prozac fluoxetine volume of distribution 2500 Half-life, 53 hours, so it's more than two days. And then I have other one that have um, highlighted. So phenytoin is known to have a um, short therapeutic index. And if you look here, the target concentration, which is the minimum effective concentration, is 10 milligrams <coughs> per liter. But the toxic concentration is only twice that target concentration. So very narrow uh, therapeutic range and more likely to have uh, adverse effect if it's not well monitored. For the other one, it's not even mentioned because it's not, uh, it's not a problem. I mean, to uh, administer those uh, dose. Acetaminophen, you say it's 15. This is the target concentration, and it's 300 for the toxic. Yeah. Probably those who made the table, they didn't have you know, all the literature to put it <laughs> into a table. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, carmabazepine, short. Yeah, narrow, narrow therapeutic. Index. And then same thing, this table is for you. Try to see, you know, take example, um, and then try to see if you understood, you know, volume of distribution and half-life and therapeutic range. So just, you know, look at the table when you do your, uh, when you study, just take the table and try to relate to the content of the handout. And now let's start pharmacodynamic, and then we'll do some uh, eye clicker question. So last time I give you an idea of what pharmacodynamic was. So it's the dose response relationship. It studies the drug receptor interaction. Um, there are also some drug response that do not involve receptor, but involve enzymes. And then there are some interpatient variability in terms of pharmacodynamic. And then the last parameter we'll talk about next week will be the therapeutic index. Uh, now the dose-response relationship, so for pharmacokinetics, we look at the time course of uh, the therapeutic response. It was over time. Here is the dose versus the response. And you see there are three phases. Phase one, it's pretty flat, so you give a dose, you don't really see a response. You increase the dose, you start to see an increase in the response and then you reach a plateau, even if you keep increasing your dose, you're not gonna see a higher, um, higher effect. So if it's a painkiller, the response is gonna be the pain relief. 
you increase the dose of your Tylenol, you have a higher pain relief. But if you keep increasing it, it doesn't mean that it's going to keep uh, give you more relief. It's just going to plateau. Uh, so the maximum maximal efficacy is the height of the curve. So once you reach the plateau, that's the maximal efficacy. And it's an important characteristic of a drug because, for example, pain, uh, pain relief, so if you have a cancer patient, you want probably to give him the most, um, the drug that is, uh, has the higher efficacy. So here you have two um, opioids and you see that Demerol is more potent, uh, it has a higher efficacy compared to uh, Talwin. The height of the curve is higher. Now, uh, the potency is the amount of the drug that is needed to elicit an effect. And actually, to determine the potency, it's indicated by the relative position of the dose response curve along the x axis. And it's determined actually by the EC50, which is a concentration of a drug that is required uh, to produce 50% of the maximal effect. So in here you see you have 50% of that maximal effect. And that's how you determine um, the, pot the relative potency. And so here you have morphine versus meperidine. So morphine is more potent because for a smaller dose, you produce 50% of the maximal effect. You see they have the same efficacy, but they have different potency. So a most potent drug produce the same response at a lower concentration. And it's really an important characteristic because what you really want to see is the, the maximal efficacy rather than the potency. And so these are both graphs that are plot, uh, that are shown. So meperidine has a greater efficacy, and then morphine is more uh, potent than uh, meperidine. No pharmacodynamic. Um, as I said, it's going to study the, the receptor interaction, so it's based on the receptor uh, theory. And in order to uh, have an effect, the drug must force to be bound to the receptive substance. So as I said, it can be a receptor. The receptive substance can be a receptor, but the receptive substance can also be an enzyme. So for example, NSAID don't bind to a receptor, but they bind to an enzyme. And so they bind to the receptive substance to produce an effect. The target describes the cellular molecule to which a drug binds to initiate an effect. So here you have the case of um, nor epinephrine, which is the endogenous compound, and here you have the drug, they bind to the same receptor. And these are, for example, the beta receptor that are localized on the heart. Uh, those receptors, they are physiologic receptor, um, and who has a normal function when the endogenous ligand, ligand bind to them. So those endogenous ligands can be an hormone or a neurotransmitter. And once the endogenous ligand bind to those receptors, it's going to produce a physiological response. Now, when it's a drug, if it's an agonist, it's going to produce the same response as the endogenous. If it's an antagonist, it's going to have the opposite effect. 
And there are four classes of receptor, cholinergic, adrenergic, dopaminergic, serotoninergic are the primary uh, neurotransmitter receptor. And we'll see this in detail when we talk about central nervous system. These are just example. Another, and so the drugs that bind to those receptors, for example, anticholinergic drugs, are gonna bind to the cholinergic receptor. Uh, Beta-adrenergic are gonna bind to the adrenergic receptor. And those receptors, they can be extracellular. Most of them are extracellular. They are localized uh, outside the cells. But for estrogen and um, other hormones, they are actually intracellular. They are localized in the on the nucleus. Other drug target, as I said, not all the drugs bind to the <coughs> receptor. Um, they can inhibit some enzymes, so that's the case of the NSAID. This is another example of drug target. They can bind to membrane uh, transporter, for example, cocaine bind to the dopamine uh, transporter. And then you have some drugs that are called receptor-less drugs. They don't have to bind to a receptor, they don't have to bind to an enzyme. And these are the drug that has physical chemical properties. For example, TAMS, the anti-acid, is just their physical uh, chemical properties that is gonna antagonize the acidity of your stomach. For example, when you take a TAM, it's uh, some calcium carbonate, it has some uh, basic property and it's just gonna antagonize the effect, the acidity uh, in the stomach. And then when we'll talk about the GI system, we'll talk about uh, some chelator agent and how the laxatives are acting as well. It's just, they act by their physical chemical uh, properties. And then the receptor theory. The first theory is the law of uh, mass action, which means the magnitude of the, of the response to a drug is considered to be a function of the concentration of the drug at the receptor. The more drug you have at the receptor, the highest the response is gonna be. And so you have the formation of that complex at a, a particular time, and that's when you can measure uh, the drug response. And then finally, before we do the eye clicker question, there are different types of receptors. Um, you have the one that are embedded in the membrane, and so here you see the drug bind to the receptor. When it's bound, it just produces a signal. You have the one that binds to the receptor and open a channel. For example, the glutamate receptors are uh, channel uh, receptors and gonna, um, when they bound to the receptor, you open a calcium channel. Then you have the G-coupled receptor. Um, norepinephrine, for example, bind to a G-coupled receptor. And finally, as I said, the one that are localized in the nucleus, and this is the case for the hormone. And we'll talk about all these type of receptor when we see the different class of drug. This is just to give you a start of what we're gonna see and to tell you how important those principles are. <laughs> so we're gonna stop here and then Tiffany is gonna do our eye clicker question and hopefully you will all be able to answer correctly. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>